0: You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. Yeah, Beach Day is going to be a lot of fun next Saturday, so if you can join us. We're going to be probably uh, there longer than just 11 to 2, there before and thereafter, so if you... Can make it there at any of those times. We'd love to have you, but um do you want to just say thank you to veterans as well for making um, our country a safe, free place. I mean, a tangible way um is that we get to worship and and teach the word of God in freedom in a country like this. And so, so thankful to those that are serving and uh, have served. I love you guys and really, really appreciative of you. Um, So excited every Sunday, you know, to get into the Word of God and worship and to to gather with you guys. It's such a blessing. It's such a privilege to do that. And so we're moving right through the book of Mark. If you were here last week, we finished chapter 1. It took us about a month and a half to get through. But we are jumping right into the next text. So if you have your Bibles, uh, why don't you turn with me to Mark 2, verses 1 through 12. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, just want to make sure you know, you guys, I'm sure, see the tables as you walk in. You are always welcome to grab one of those or take it home if you don't have one. I'm teaching out the New Living Translation, so most likely it might be different than your own. Feel free to grab that and so you can follow along and aren't super confused. Um, but title today is Our Greatest Need. And so why don't you read with me <clears throat> Mark 2 verses 1 through 12 says this. When Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was uh, staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room, even outside the door. While he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, so they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, "'My child, your sins are forgiven.'" But some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking, so he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority to, to, on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, "Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home." And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, and walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, proclaiming, or "Exclaiming, excuse me, we've never seen anything like this before. This is the word of the Lord." Will you pray with me. God, we thank you for your word this morning that is God-breathed and God-inspired. And we want to receive it as that, as your words, as as ones that are profitable and, and, and infallible and that have authority over our lives. And as we look into this narrative, this eyewitness account of your interaction with this paralyzed man in the midst of the crowd... We ask that not only would you give us understanding to what this text means, but how it applies to our own lives. How as we walk out these doors into our unique circumstances with our spouse and our kids or or our community or our family or our workplace, that you would teach us this morning how this ought to speak to us and how we ought to live our lives in this way. We ask, Lord, for your anointing and your empowerment this morning, that you would be with us, that you would have your way. And we pray that same uh, over the Bible-believing, Christ-centered churches in this town, on this island, that are meeting in this same, on the same time. We ask that you'd bless them, that you'd meet them, that you'd pour your spirit upon them, Lord. Thank you that you're building your kingdom on this island for your glory, and we're humbled to be a small part of it. And so, God, move in our midst. Pray that you get all the glory and all the credit for what you're doing. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, last week, just to give us a little recap, if you weren't here, there was this dramatic scene of Jesus healing a leper. And he pretty much broke every cultural, religious, and social rule to do so. Because mainly, lepers needed to stay away from people. Right, it, it, They needed to stay a far distance away. If you saw a leper, you would, you would yell, unclean, unclean, for fear of being infected yourself. You know, this was uncurable back then, and lepers were the outcasts of society. But this leper comes to Jesus in front of him, kneels down, and says, if you're willing, heal me. And Jesus reaches out and touches this leper, which that, that was never done. And immediately, this man's leprosy was healed. It was cured. And in front of the crowds, I mean, this, this man, leprosy was cured for the first time, and he sent him away to the priest to 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 go through the Old Testament process of making sure this man was cleansed of leprosy. But last week, if Jesus broke all the rules, right, to heal this man, this week he goes even step further. I mean, he crosses a boundary this week that leaves everyone stunned and literally... The religious leaders of that time, the scribes, the teachers of the law, claimed blasphemy. They claimed the way that what Jesus was doing was blasphemy. But what's happening in the book of Mark, if you remember, is it's testifying or it's recording the kingdom of God coming. Or the in-breaking kingdom of God coming into this broken world. And all these things, whether it's healing every kind of sickness and disease or casting out demons or healing lepers, all these things are the kingdom of God coming in, and it's really stirring things up, right? God and the person of Jesus Christ has come on the scene, and the kingdom of God is coming forward, and things are being stirred up, and, and news is traveling, and people coming are coming from near and afar. I mean, this has gone viral. I mean, this is a big deal. This is the... This is, 800 years of prophecy that is being fulfilled. Some are believing, some are not. And Jesus is just making a scene. He's uprooting darkness and the effects of sin on humanity. He's breaking every cultural and social and even religious belief of the time. But people are being healed, right? People are being set free. I mean, lifelong diseases are being cured. And what we'll see today is that a man that has been paralyzed for who knows how long is able to walk again, but there's a deeper root issue that Jesus has got to today, and it's healing and forgiving of sin. And so, what we see today is another eyewitness account of Jesus in the city of Capernaum healing this man. And again, the book of Mark, it's thought that Mark is writing down what Peter witnessed. So this is most likely Peter's house in the city of Capernaum. Peter journaled down all these eyewitness accounts of what he saw. And then Mark took them and wrote this book. And so this is a narrative. This is a story. It's something that we're supposed to be drawn into and that we can see and we can taste and feel. We're supposed to get into that story. And so much of today is going to be really trying to put ourselves in that room. Right? It's a little hard because it's 2,000 years ago in Israel and the culture is different, the language is different. But we're going to try to put ourselves in the room and even be the paralytic and be the friends that lowered him down in the room and be the crowd and maybe be even the scribes and really try to grasp the significance of what happened. And so we'll just walk through it and just allow, allow yourself to get into the story of what really is happening. So if we look at our text this morning, we need to remember that so many people were, were, were coming to see Jesus, right? Word was traveling that, that he couldn't even be in cities, right? He told the leper even, don't tell anyone I healed you because there'll be too many people that come and see me. And that's just what happened. He didn't heed Jesus' words. He went and told people. And there were so many people coming to see Jesus that he could not even come into the cities anymore. And so for a period of time... It says that he was just wandering, right? And so it says, even in verse one of our text this morning, Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later. So he's he's been out, kind of wandering in the wilderness, not able to not able to be in those towns because so many people have come to see him. But he's come back to Capernaum, uh, kind of his home base of ministry, most likely in Peter's house. And crowds had gathered. It's so many. I mean, this is like. You know, one of those high school parties type of thing where there's no room, standing room only. You can't even get in the door. There's chaos going on. People are walking up to the house. I mean, it's a scene. Jesus is in the center of this house. And it's not like a big house. You can actually go to Israel, into Capernaum, and actually see Peter's house. Uh, It's like, you know, a 15 by 15 piece of, uh, you know, rock house. I mean, there must have, it was really tight. Not many people inside. People are peering in maybe the windows and the doors. And Jesus is teaching. Right, he's teaching them the word of God. They're all here to see him. He's preaching and teaching out of God's word. Most, like, you know, most likely it would have been the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Jewish Bible and our Bible. And he's proclaiming and he's teaching them. He's expounding the word of God. And, and most likely he is telling them Old Testament prophecy. And that Old Testament prophecy is alluding to everything that he has been doing. He's teaching of himself. He's teaching of his father who's in heaven. And how he's fulfilling years and years of prophecy. But then this paralytic. We see there's this paralytic. We don't know if he's, you know, quadriplegic. We don't know if he's just waist down. This man cannot walk. He can't come to see Jesus. And so he needs help. Right? He needs help to even get close to Jesus. See, Jesus was healing everyone, right? Every kind of sickness and disease was being healed. And this man wanted a piece of it. Right? This, 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 this paraplegic or, or you know, this paralyzed man wanted a piece of that healing. I mean, can you imagine back then being paralyzed? I mean, even today, right? But you have wheelchairs, you have electric wheelchairs, maybe you have you have different instruments, you do different things to help you cope with life. There's none of that. If you were paralyzed in first century Israel, I mean, you were just on your bed, needing, everyone needed to do everything for you. And this man heard of Jesus and he came to Jesus to be made physically well. Like, that's his intention. Maybe, you know, maybe there was something else, but his felt immediate need was being healed and able to walk again. The entirety of his life was affected by his disability. He came to Jesus to walk again. That was his greatest immediate need. And everyone would have thought that. As they saw his friends carrying him there, oh, why is that guy coming? It's to see Jesus, to be healed Right? Because every kind of sickness and disease was coming. This would have been no different. And everyone, his friends, him included, in that room, would have thought, we're here so that we can be physically healed. But he couldn't do it on his own, right? He needed help of other people. You know, we don't really know for sure who these people were that were carrying him. Could have been friends, could have been family, could have just been people that he, even in the, you know, that he knew nearby. But it says, four men were carrying him. There's no specific mention of who they were, but this man needed help to get to Jesus. And what we'll see here is this is an incredible example of determination like, or persistence of getting to Jesus. Right? Because they easily could have just been like, oh man, the house is too crowded. We can't get in. You're like on a stretcher. We're carrying you. We don't even know how far they came from. Like, how far did they come from? Was the guy living in Capernaum or was he miles away? I mean, how long did it take to carry this man? Right? The house is bustling. There's no room. It could have easily just been said like, hey man, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to get in. Uh, Maybe we have to wait for a while. But that's not what happened. (laughs) Whether it's this man speaking to them on his mat or whether it's the friends themselves, but they're like, we got to get you to Jesus. Like Jesus is the only one that can fix our situation and we just got to do it. And so what they do is, is it's a pretty dramatic scene, right? They, they don't just turn around. They don't just wait. They get on the roof of this house and they, they dig or they uncover. I mean, the ESV, it says remove the roof. NLT says dug a hole. But they go on the roof, all, all five of them with a stretcher on the roof to get to Jesus. Most likely back then, um, it was so hot that you could actually get onto many roofs in Israel. There was either like, you know, a ladder or some stairs so that you could be up there in the cool of the night and you could, you know, up there at cooler times of day. So they're most likely they could get on the roof, but at that time, probably it was, you know, wooden beams were covering the roof, maybe with some pitch, some water sealant, with some fronds. But it was a fairly sturdy roof. I mean, this wasn't just like, you know, a bunch of bamboo put together. I mean, this was a roof that was gonna weather some storms, it was gonna weather rain. They get up on the roof, they're like, hmm, how do I get to Jesus? Through the roof, they start digging and can. And can you imagine being in the room hearing Jesus teach and all of a sudden the roof starts coming apart? And you know it's just so dusty, right? The dust is coming. Pond problems are coming down. You know, I'm sure there would have been commotion. I mean, talk about distractions during teaching, right? Imagine Jesus teaching and then, you know, it's one thing if one of you guys like cell phones goes off right now. That would have been one thing. Another thing if the roof started opening up right now and there was guys coming and then all of a sudden there's a hole, we see people and they start lowering a guy down into the, into the house. I mean, and how do they even know where Jesus was? Did they like dig a little people? and they, No, he's over there on that side of the room. No, because it says they lowered him right down in front of Jesus. I mean, think about this. It's important to think about this because it speaks of persistence. Like, they knew Jesus was the only one in their lives that could heal this man. And they were going to do whatever it took to get their friend to Jesus. I mean, if that's not an example or an illustration of how we ought to think about getting our friends and family to Jesus, I don't know what is. That doesn't mean that you like, take your family member and you put him on like, a mat and you like, tie him down and you bring him through the door. No. But it should be this testimony of, like, be persistent with your friends and family that need to know Jesus. Because Jesus is the answer. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So don't give up. Like, don't give up on your family or friends that you're just like, dude, I I just feel like there's no hope with them. I know for me, it took years and years and years for my dad to even get into a church building. You know, I didn't grow up in a church, Uh, my parents got divorced, lived with my mom, but I got, you know, I came to know Jesus in this, like, salvific, born-again way in junior high when I was seven, uh, in seventh grade, and it took years of praying and, like, giving my dad sermon tapes and, like, talking to him about church and talking him about Jesus before he'd even step inside a building, let alone give his life to the Lord, but to God be the glory, that that persistence led him to know Jesus. Like, it led him to do it, but it it took persistence. It took not giving up and being creative, which these guys were really creative. How do we get him to Jesus? Let's dig a hole in the roof. It's like, what? You don't do that. Well, what happened? They got him to Jesus. You know, it's just one of those illustrations, again, reminding us um, to not give up praying and going after those in your family, and in your friends, and your coworkers that you're like, dude, they need Jesus, but I don't know how they're going to get there. Pray, ask, seek, knock. Be persistent, because uh, man, just be reminded of this story. So, okay, back to the story, right? There's a hole in the roof. This man gets lowered down. You know, it's a packed place. And you just would have, if you're in the crowd in that room, you'd be hearing to Jesus, but you see the whole, and all of a sudden you're like, what is happening? What's going on? And this man is lowered. You know, again, you're like, how did he get lowered? Ropes? They just lower him this way? How did they do this? But they did it. And everyone, the man, the friends, the crowds, they were looking. It was like the front row seat to, okay, he's paralyzed. Jesus, do your thing. Heal him. That's what you do. Everyone would have just stopped and waited, right? After the commotion, they would have just been like, okay, we got a front row seat to Jesus making this man walk again. See, because everyone's assumption was that if Jesus could heal this man and he could just walk home, everything in his life just would have been good. Like that was their assumption. If only he could walk again, everything would have been grand. But Jesus had much more than a physical healing in mind, something much more important that maybe didn't even cross their mind, or maybe obviously didn't cross their mind at the time. So there's this dramatic scene, this guy's getting lowered down, they're all waiting, it's dusty, there's debris, people are just waiting to see what happens. This man is lowered, and what does Jesus do? Doesn't heal him. Doesn't heal him sees this man and it says immediately he says my child your sins are forgiven so if you were in that room even if you were the guy you were the guy you would have been like what like like jesus i don't know if you know but he can't walk like he came he came to be healed what are you saying but then they would have double-taked and say what did he just say Like, wait, 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 wait. First of all, you didn't heal him, but what did you just say? His sins are forgiven? We'll we'll get to that in a second. But what's really significant, it says that Jesus saw this man's faith, and he said this. Remember, the guy didn't say anything. We don't see that. He didn't, like, repent of his sins in this situation. But Jesus saw his heart. He saw his intentions. He knew that he believed. That's what we see here that Jesus saw this man's faith. And this is the first time in Mark's gospel we actually see the idea of faith or belief. So there so this man's faith didn't come in, in you know, a certain form of offering or a certain form of words or even a prayer. Jesus saw his heart that moved them to action. Right? He, he saw their persistence, he saw their belief that they knew that Jesus was who he said he was. They believed, you know, this man and his friends, they believed that Jesus not only had the ability to heal, but that ability was one that God could only have. And their active pursuit of Christ, he, he saw that. He he saw their intentions. He saw their beliefs in their hearts, and immediately he looked at them of what happened, and he said, your sins are forgiven. Specifically, the scribes in that room, the religious leaders, they were like the, the religious police of the time. They were enforcing law. They were making sure the Old Testament was followed correctly. They would correct people. They were just like monitoring religious activity back in the day. So when Jesus in front of them in this room said that, they they would have been like, what did you just say? It's one thing, Jesus, that you're casting out demons and that you're healing every sickness and disease. But the fact that you just said your sins are forgiven, it says that in their hearts, they said that is blasphemy. Meaning only God can do that. And if you claim something that God can do and you're not God, that's blasphemy. It's like the, the ultimate desol- you know, des- desolation of anything right and good. Forgiving sins, in their mind, would have been like, you've gone too far. If it was a sports game, it would have been like, yellow flag, penalty, you're out of the game. Like, way too far. You stepped over the line, Jesus. Like, it's one thing to heal, it's one thing to cast out demons, but you forgiving sin, God can only do that. You saying that, it's blasphemy, we're done here. That's that's where they were in their hearts. And we see this in verse 6 of our text this morning. It says, but some of the teachers of the religious law who were in that room were sitting there thought to themselves. They didn't say it, but they thought, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. See, these leaders were thinking these to themselves, and part of what they were thinking was true. It is true that God can only forgive sins. It isn't true that Jesus was committing blasphemy because Jesus is God. That's what they weren't getting. That's what they couldn't comprehend. How could this carpenter from Nazareth that we all know be God? And how could he possibly be able to heal and forgive sins? Because God can only forgive sins. So one thing was true. God can only forgive sins. The other thing that they were believing that, that Jesus was committing blasphemy was not true. Because what he is doing here amidst the crowd is he is... Kind of showing his cards, so to speak. See, all these miracles, all these healings, all the casting out demons are just um, a way of pointing to the fact that he is God. But for him to say, I forgive you of sin, is something that only God can do. And so what he's doing is making like a stamp of approval, pretty much saying, I am God. I am God in the flesh. I'm God incarnate. I do have the ability to forgive sins because I'm God in the flesh. And, you know, we know the story of the Gospels, right? Many didn't believe this or wouldn't. And so this single action in Mark chapter 2 was was writing Jesus' death sentence. These same scribes and Pharisees, uh, the same group of people would take these truths to the Romans Ultimately, to crucify Christ. Why was Jesus crucified? For committing blasphemy, claiming to be God, claiming to forgive sins when those thought he wasn't God. This was the first moment we see in Mark's gospel. It would would ultimately lead to the Jewish leaders, the scribes, along with the Romans, to crucify Christ. It was for this very sentence, this very act, that he was claiming to be God that sent Jesus to the cross. But being God, Jesus knew their actions. He knew their hearts, just like he knew the man's faith that was lowered into the room that he just forgave his sins. He knew what the scribes were thinking. And then in verse 8 and 9, it says this of our text this morning. It says, Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking, so he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? I mean, think about that. The scene gets even crazier, right? This narrative is, is, is trippy because, right, this guy gets lowered. He says your sins are forgiven. People are, like, stunned. The scribes are not saying anything, but they're thinking this very thing, and Jesus addresses them in the room and says, what's, it, what's harder? Me to forgive sins or to say take up, take up the, you know, your mat and walk? To heal him physically or to heal him spiritually? What's harder? I mean, think about that. You'd be like, whoa, dude, how did you just read my mind? I mean, right? It's again proving like, hey, I can read your mind. I can heal this man or I can forgive his sins. What's harder? That's what he's saying right here. Like, what's going to make you happy? Yes, it's easier to say to someone, your sins are forgiven, right? I can just say those words. And so if you don't believe me, I'll show you by this miracle that I am who I say I am. So he's like, do you want me to heal him? I'll do that. And it'll prove that I am the Messiah and the Son of God, and I am able to forgive sins. So what does he do? Verse 10 and 12. He says, I'll prove to you that... The son of man, speaking of himself, has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, pick up your mat and go home. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, walked through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, We've never seen anything like this before. Jesus's actions were proof to this unbelievable claim to forgive sins. Right, and ultimately the cross and especially Jesus's resurrection from the dead would bring validity to him being gone, excuse me, being God and the ability to forgive sins, but in this dramatic story in this little house in Capernaum for the first time recorded in Mark's gospel, we see the inbreaking of the kingdom of God not only come in physical healings, but come with forgiveness of sins. I mean, do you guys see the significance of this story? I mean, can you imagine that scene? You want to see? I can forgive sins. You want to see? Here you go. This man, he walks through the stunned onlookers, right? The crowd has to part. This man that's paralyzed walks out the door, and they're all stunned. Right, they're all in awe of this man, Jesus. Because the thing is, is that everyone was only wanting and expecting a physical healing. Right, His first, foremost, immediate need was that he would walk again. That's all that they were concerned about, to walk and be normal. But Jesus was getting at a greater need. And I think so many times we think that about our own life, right? If we only had this, we'd be okay. Or even our prayers to Christ can be like, God, if my marriage is still good or if you give me this house or if I get that job or if like you just fix these problems, everything will be good. Right? If I just become more financially stable or like if you just kind of deal with like my past more or if I I just become like more healthy in these certain ways, I'm going to be good and we fail to remember like the greater deeper purpose of Christ coming into this world and that's that he would address man's greatest need forgiveness of sins right he's getting to the root of the issue here because the truth is is that as amazing as it would have been or as it was that this man was physically healed and he, and he could stand up for the first time, he still couldn't stand before God in God's presence because he was a sinner in need of a savior. right? And God being a holy God, not, not allowing and not being able to have sin in his presence, even though this man may have been miraculously healed, he was still dead in his sins. And so Jesus was going after a greater need, one that he could stand before God with. Because he was forgiven of sins. See, physical healing is is of great value. But spiritual healing and restoration is of eternal value. And that's what we see here this morning. See, Jesus was illuminating humanity's greatest need. Our greatest need is to be forgiven of our sin in order to be restored back to loving union with the Father. Like That is our greatest need. That is the root of the problem. Everything comes from that, that we are sinners in need of a Savior. All the junk, all the other stuff, all our problems, all this this, this evil and, 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 and sin and the effects of sin in this world comes from the fact that we are a people in need of a Savior to forgive us of sin so that we could be reunited with God. Because sin, by nature, is, is rebellion to God. It's disobedience to God, right? Sin, you could say, is selfish, independent nature. It's a turning from God to ourselves and other things. And at the heart of it, what sin does is it separates us from God, right? You, you guys know this, or, or you should know this, that the, bi- the biggest effect is that we have lost relationship with God or our relationship with God has been marred it is not what it's supposed to be and at the root of the issue is our sin and the thing that we need to remember is that we're all guilty there's not one of us there's not one person that has ever lived in the history of the world that is not guilty of sin we know this from Romans chapter 3 verse 23 all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Who does that include? All of us. Romans 5.12. When Adam sinned, back in the garden, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone for everyone sinned. All of us are far off from God. All of us have been separated from our creator. And every day we still live in sin, we feel the effects of that. Because it's not how it's supposed to be. And the thing is, is that when we sin, right? Like when we rebel, when all of humanity rebels against God, right? When we sin, it, it, it always affects someone else. Sin doesn't happen in a vacuum. So when you sin, it's going to affect your community or your family. Uh, It's going to affect other people. As much as you think, no, no one knows about this, I'm fine. Sin always affects other people. But the most offended party is God. An example of this would be King David, right? When he committed adultery with Bathsheba, then he killed Bathsheba's husband, that, that scene, you know, in the Old Testament, this dramatic scene of King David, a man after God's own heart, fell. Right? His sin affected everyone. It affected the nation of Israel by his sin with Bathsheba and his trying to cover up. But in the book of Psalms, specifically Psalm 51, he's crying out to God about this sin that he's committed, about this thing that he's committed. And in Psalm 51, verse 4, this is what King David said. He says, against you, speaking against God, against you and you alone I've sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Like David, know, David knew excuse me, that his sin affected everyone. But he knew first and foremost that his sin offended God. He offended his God and his creator and his maker. And he was even so far to say that against you and you alone I've sinned. Right? He, he felt the weight of it. He knew what his rebellion had done. And what we see from our text today, what we see throughout scripture, what we see in the gospel is that the only one who can help us is God. God. The only one that can free us and forgive us of sin is Jesus Christ. When he was speaking to the disciples in the book of John, John 14, 6, he said it pretty clear. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Meaning, if you want to stand in God's presence, be with God for all of eternity. Be able to stand forgiven and cleansed. It has to come through the person of Jesus Christ. Paul's letter to Timothy, his first letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy 2.5, says this in other words. He says, there is one, there's only one God, and there's only one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. There's not many roads that lead to God. There's not many ways. There is one way, and his name's Jesus. The New Testament would also say that the way is, 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 is the gates are, you know, wide, but the road is narrow that leads to life. That Jesus Christ is the only way to be reconciled to the Father because of our sin. And through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we're forgiven. Right? That's, that's the entire story of the gospel. That it's through His death on the cross that paid for our debt. See, sin created a debt. That needed to be paid. And the only way that it was able to be paid was with a life. Because the wages of sin is death. Right? That's what sin gets us. That's like the debt that we've accrued by being rebellious to the Lord is death. And the only way to pay that debt is with a life. And so Jesus going to the cross and dying for us paid that debt. The Bible would say he's the propitiation for our sins. Big word means the sacrifice that's satisfied. Meaning his death satisfied the price that we accrued for our sin. And when we give our lives to the Lord, we believe, we have faith. When we come to know Jesus, it's called the great exchange that happens is that he takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. So that when we stand before God now, he sees a cleansed, righteous saint rather than a lost sinner. Because Jesus paid the price on the cross for us so that we didn't have to. He died so that we didn't have to die and he gave us life in place. Ephesians 1.7 tells us this. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Right? It's by God's grace that we're saved not of ourselves. It's a gift from God. And it's through the blood of Christ and his sacrifice that we are forgiven. The book of Colossians says it a different way. Testifying of this. It says, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness And he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And praise be to God that he is able to heal us of our greatest need. Right? Even just thinking of the story this morning, that physical healing was incredible. It was amazing. It was nothing compared to Jesus going after humanity's greatest need. And for those of us that have given our life to the Lord, you know, we're Christians or we've experienced the forgiveness of sins, this would be a cause to rejoice. One thing we prayed about this morning at our prayer meeting was that we that have grown up in the church or been around the church, that we would not be desensitized to the gospel. So many times, right, we think a gospel is like a stepping stone now to our life with the Lord and that's cool and I was forgiven, but it loses the potency, pray that we would be reminded of the joy of our salvation again, you know, specifically for those that have walked with the Lord for a long time, that when we hear we've been forgiven of sins, it would take us back to that first moment that when we encountered Christ, when he forgave us and washed us as white as snow, right, that, that he saved us from our sins, and no longer do we are, we, are we slaves to sin, but we've been freed from the bondage of sin, and we can stand freely in the presence of God, I mean, do you get that? I know for me studying this week, I was convicted that in in many ways I'm I'm desensitized to the gospel, especially like being a pastor in a church and, you know, you talk about it a lot and you talk about communion and you're around it a lot. But I was reminded just of that innocence of like, oh my gosh, Jesus forgave my sins. He's the only one that could do it and he did it, right? You know, like to be reminded of that childlike faith and rejoice in the fact that him, him alone saved us. You know, the book of Romans would go on and it would say, the wages of sin is death, right? We talked about that. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He came, God sent his only Son. To save the world and forgive their their sin so that they could be restored to their father once again. And that's what he's done for us. And that's what he offers the entire world as a free gift. That's why the gospel is good news. The gospel is good news because Jesus forgives our sin and restores a relationship between us and God the Father. Amen. There is much cause to rejoice. And as we worship now, let's rejoice and be thankful for what God has done for us. Amen? Amen. God, we thank you. I mean, even, even thank you may not even be enough for what you've done for us. I pray that we would come back to the significance of being forgiven of our sins. That you would just bring us back to that place of of amazement, just as this crowd was amazed, that we would be that we would be stirred to thankfulness this morning. And maybe for some of us in this room that we haven't really we haven't experienced the forgiveness of sin. And I pray that Yeah, Lord, I pray that you would would do that in this room, that you would forgive sin this morning, that you would restore broken relationships. God, we are in awe of you. We don't deserve forgiveness. We don't deserve life. We deserve death, but you stepped in and you made a way and you took our place. And so as brothers and sisters in Christ, as the family of God this morning as, as we're gathered here and as we spend a bit more time worshiping, we pray God that we would praise you for these truths. We would praise you for the abundant new and eternal life that you have given us through the cross and that you have forgiven our sins as made as white, white as snow and you've washed our sins as far as from the east as from the west and forgotten them thank you, Lord, and we praise you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.